Everything that lives and moves about you about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number and multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will be to his brothers, will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Thank you, Tim. Good morning. I'm just going to set this recording, so best behaviour, everyone on Zoom. Good morning to you, T. Uh, Let me pray.
Psalm 46 says, Be still and know that I am God. And Father, our prayer this morning is that you would help us to do that. Thank you that you are our refuge and strength. You are an ever-present help in trouble. Thank you that you keep your promises. You are faithful and you are good. Help us. Grant us the faith to be still and to know that you are God. So help us as we look at your word now. Father, please, would you speak to us and encourage us and challenge us and comfort us with your truth. Amen. How good are you at waiting? Are you good at waiting for things generally? What might your partner say? Are you, are you good at waiting for things? Um, I don't mean waiting in a restaurant, just to, not that type of waiting at tables. Um, I suspect our modern world has got worse at waiting, much more impatient than it used to be. I can remember the days of um, dial-up modems. Um, <laughs> where you have sort of 10 minutes of a cross between a coffee machine and a xylophone while you're... And, and, oh, it hasn't connected. Oh, well, I'll just try again. And Whereas nowadays, if you have to wait more than 10 seconds for a BBC Sport app to, to load properly and update, you're willing to throw your phone in the river. Um, well, Noah and his family, as we saw last week had to do a whole lot of waiting. Um, it probably took them 98 years to, to, to build the ark. I, I was reading this week. This is astonishing, isn't it? And when it was finished, when all the animals were on board, they had to wait seven days before it even started to rain. There's 40 days of, of, of the flood, 150 days of the, the waters prevailing. 150 days of the waters receding, then 40 more days of of waiting, and then seven more days of waiting, and seven more days of waiting after doves are going flying back and forth. It's it's extraordinary, isn't it, the timescales involved in, in that great story. And actually the Hebrew word that's used for wait throughout that story means more than just wait. It means hope. It means expectation. It means, it means waiting in hope and, and expectation. So there's a faith element to that waiting, that hoping that Noah and his family were, were doing. A trust or, or belief, a hope. Not a kind of wishful thinking kind of a hope. Not a sort of wishy-washy, touch wood, I hope Luton Town win the Premier League kind of hope. A solid dependable, concrete hope that is rooted squarely, not in circumstances and feelings, and, and, but rooted entirely in the character of God and who he is. In Romans chapter 4, Paul describing Abraham's faith. Romans 4, 20, 21. He says this about Abraham. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Isn't that a great description of faith, of what it means to hope in expectation for the Lord? He was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. 
That's what we, we saw in Noah and his family and, and his life. And actually, that's why the writer of Genesis, Moses, has laid out these stories for us. <coughs> Moses, as he put together these, five, these first five books of the Bibles, is wanting to persuade us of who God really is, that he has the power to do what he has promised. Whereas some of the peoples around at the, at the time of Genesis, perhaps they were worshipping the sun. Moses is saying, no, the true God is the one who created the sun in the first place. He has the power to do what, he, what he's promised. And this morning, we're going to look into one of his promises and, uh, and uh, uh, the covenant that he makes with, with Noah and his family here. And the question I want us to ask as we go through is this morning, can I, can you, can, can we trust God to do what he's promised? Actually, that's the heart of, of the Christian faith. If this morning you're not a Christian here, that you wouldn't call yourself that, it's, it's so great to have you here. Um, but this is the heart of, of the Christian faith. Can we trust God to keep his promises? And that's a huge question for us if we are Christians here as well. I put your feet in the shoes of God's people. Many, many years, generations on from these, these verses in, in Genesis, sat on the banks of the Euphrates weeping as they remembered Zion, as they remembered, sat in exile, a conquered people. As they read these truths, these, these words, is God going to keep his promise? Look where we are. Is he trustworthy? Can I trust him? Can I entrust myself? Can I hope in him? Well, I think all too often, that question is a very live question for us in our Christian lives as well, in the circumstances we find ourselves in. Can I trust God in what I'm going through, in what's, uh, what's ahead? So let's... Um, dig into to, to this chapter. There's lots going on, um, so save all your difficult questions for Sam next week. Um, I'm glad he's preaching that one and um, he gets to do that Q&A. Um, uh, yeah, so we're going to, to think about what this, um, what this all means for us today. Um, but first of all, a bit of context for us. So as we've seen in the book of Genesis, right at the start, Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. That's his verdict at the end of, of creation. But by Genesis 6, verse 5, as we saw last week, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every, only, all. That's striking, isn't it? The situation has deteriorated over, over, over the chapter since the fall in, in chapter 3. We've seen this downward spiral. And last week we saw the Lord was profoundly grieved by the wickedness, by the evil, by the violence that he saw. And so in verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. 
And so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. For I regret that I have made them. It's striking, wasn't it? Sobering. But it's important for us to see that this wasn't just a, a fit of rage. He's not just kind of lost it, flown off the handle. Sometimes we can try and extrapolate our own human emotions and responses onto God and think that he responds like, like we do. What a disaster it would be if that were true. But he is not like us. Actually, what we saw last week, this is God's slow and deliberate response to the evil that he sees. He doesn't confront evil with indifference or half measures. But as we saw, with judgment mixed with salvation, wrath and mercy. So after 390 plus days, at the end of chapter 8, the first thing that Noah does after he comes out of the ark is to build an altar to the Lord and to sacrifice burnt offerings to him. And that's where we find ourselves here in, in chapter 9. Um, and so the, the, uh, the structure of chapter 9, um, so either side of what we see in, um, actually let's uh, just skip on to the, where's my structure? Um, so, um, so I, yeah, up on the screen there, there's, there's the structure. Either side of God's covenant with, with, with Noah and, and humanity. We get him spelling out um, the new decrees, kind of humanity 2.0. Here we go. Uh, and then we get this account of sin and shame and, and curses. Uh, so we're going to start, we're going to look at the new decrees side of things. And then we'll look at the, the sin and the curses bit. And then we'll come back to think about the covenant as we go. So first we'll have a look at verses 1 to 7 with me these new decrees that the lord brings and these words of blessing to noah are almost exactly the same as they are to adam as they were to adam back in in chapter one god blessed them adam and eve in chapter one be fruitful and increase in number he said to them and there's there's strong echoes of that here in chapter nine as well and and there's this sense that that noah like adam it's the kind of father figure of, of a new humanity, humanity 2.0. But whilst their roles are in some way similar, in chapter 9, we get the sense that things have changed significantly after the fall, after the flood. And we see some of those changes in these, in these, reflected in these verses here. The first one is that they're no longer vegetarians, verse 3. Perhaps the bri-loving South Africans are rejoicing at that. <laughs> Whereas there was a more harmonious relationship with animals and birds and fish in, in the early chapters of Genesis, now there's fear and dread amongst the animals. I guess they know they're potentially lunch um, for, for the humans now. But in these verses, the Lord goes on to spell out the sanctity of life. The world has changed irrevocably from Genesis 1 and 2. Sin, murder, death, violence has brought to life the, the evil that humans are capable of. 
But whilst life has changed, notice that our foundational identity and dignity as human beings created in the image of God has not changed. Verse 6 of chapter 9. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So in these first few verses you get the sense that life is a sacred gift from God. He gives it. And the laws that he gives around blood here limit humanity's rights over other living creatures. And they also pave the way for hugely significant theological themes that will be taken up in, in the rest of the Bible. So you, you might remember our series in, in Leviticus when we're thinking about sacrifices and blood and, uh, and that kind of thing. In Leviticus 17, verse 11, um, the Lord said, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement. Uh, for one's life so this that important theme here's where it starts off right at the start of our 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 bibles and and you can um trace that through the old testament laws and finally (laughs) with jesus's death on the cross so that's the kind of starting point this new humanity things have changed but our fundamental um dignity and uh, as, as human beings remains flick on to um, verses 18 to 29 um, and this uh, this story sin and curses and shame and, and the destinies of of these sons now some have suggested that actually there's echoes with Adam here and, and the fall here too um there's fruit involved and leading to sin and leading to huge, wide-ranging problems. And it's fair to say there are bits of this account that are just a bit of a head-scratcher for us. And it's, it's mis- slightly a mis- bit of a mystery to work out exactly what's going on and why and, and what the narrator, Moses, as he's writing it, is, is wanting us to think about it or, or to say about it. Actually, when it comes to Old Testament narrative, it's really important to look closely at what the narrator specifically calls out or or makes moral judgments about in the text as it happens. Because as as we look at this this account here in chapter 9, Noah gets drunk on, on too much wine, and we can kind of jump onto that, fixate on that, um, because we know from the rest of the Bible that, that getting drunk is, is not good. It, it's wrong. We know that wine is a good gift from God. So you could turn to um, Psalm 104, um, I think up on the screen there. Psalm 104. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants, people, and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts. Um, so there's this sense that, that wine is a good gift from God. But at the same time, you could turn to, to passages like Proverbs 23. Um, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaints, who has needless bruises, who has bloodshot eyes, those who linger over wine 
I go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind will imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me and I don't feel it. When I wake up, when will I wake up so I can find another drink? That's striking, isn't it? Um, so we read that Noah gets drunk and we kind of instantly kind of make all these connections and, and, and think about it. But, but in chapter 9 itself, Noah's drunkenness is not what the narrator calls out. There's no moral comment about Noah's, um, Noah's drunkenness here. Instead, the focus of the account is, is on Ham and, uh, and his actions are, are what are explicitly called out and condemned. And again, there's mystery, there's a bit of speculation and debate as to exactly what the problem is. Some suggesting that there's something a bit more overtly sexual that, that Ham does. Um, uh, people could kind of read read into that he saw and that he told and uh, they're kind of reading into to those sorts of things more than actually there um, personally i don 't think we can go that far I think if we 're keeping to the plain reading of the text and and of the actions of Shem and Japheth um, i, I don 't think it is a kind of overtly sexual thing that he does, so it seems like ham sees his dad drunk and naked. And rather than cover him up, he jokes about it to his brothers and invites them to come and have a good old laugh at their dad about it too. Now, culturally today, the seriousness of that is, is lost on us a bit. But in the Old Testament and in the, the culture generally at the, at the time, honouring your father and your mother was a big deal. A big deal. It was, it was important. It's the fifth commandment, as, as we see in, in Exodus. The first after the, the four commandments that are, the, the, the first after the, the four that are to do with how we're to relate to God. Um, top of the list of the ones of the commandments to do with how we're to relate to other are, are this command for us to honour our father and our mother. So, Ham, in this in this story fails to to honor his father fails to preserve his dignity and seeks to get others to join him in in laughing at him and dishonoring him and so when noah wakes up realizes what's happened he makes his pronouncements and again there's questions as to in, in, as you kind of look at Noah's pronouncements, and why is it Canaan that is cursed, and and not Ham? Um, Canaan is, is Ham's son. It's a good question. But what we can say is that from this is a pronouncement from Noah. It's not presented as as a prophecy from God. Uh, so not necessarily reflecting God's purposes and plans and with that full authority. And we definitely can't take these, these verses as, as the Bible advocating slavery or, or a kind of defense of slavery 
as some in the past have done. But as you go through the unfolding story of the Old Testament of God's people, and you follow the lines of, of these families tree, and you see how Moses here is is interested in Canaan, is picking him out, um, is 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 wanting to to make links to him. You see, as you go through the story of the Old Testament, the Canaanites as a people, uh, they get off to a bad start here, and actually are marked by a rejection of God and His law, um, and are turning their back on Him um, throughout their history. Well, there's there's more we could say on all of those things. But I want to focus the rest of our time on the covenant that God makes with with uh, with Noah and his sons. And perhaps covenant is a word that um, we don't really use that much in everyday life, unless perhaps you're a lawyer or you're buying a house. Then it kind of comes up a bit more. Covenant simply means a, an agreement. A, a partnership where binding promises are made. So uh, marriage would be the, the obvious example of that. On your wedding day, what are you doing? You're making binding promises to love and be faithful to your wife or, or your husband. And covenants are a hugely important concept in understanding God's big picture plan of salvation. There's a bit of scholarly debate as to exactly how many covenants there are as you're going to go through the story of the Bible. But I would suggest there are five foundational covenants. And I want to do a whistle-stop tour of those. Um, now, so, so the first one is, is this, this one here in, in Genesis 9. This kind of sometimes called a universal covenant God enters a formal relationship with Noah and with his sons and the family and with all living creatures, promising that despite humanity's corruption, he will never again flood the earth. It's an unconditional covenant. And we get the rainbow as as a sign of the covenant. So that's the kind of first major one. The next one, as the story continues is God's covenant with Abraham. God's rescue plan continues and he calls Abraham into a covenantal relationship with him. He promises Abraham a huge family that will inherit a piece of land in Canaan and and that through his family, through his 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 line, there will be blessing for all humanity. And this covenant is conditional and unconditional. God and Abraham each have a part to play, but ultimately God will keep his promise to give Abraham a family who will inherit the land and bless the world. And circumcision is given as a sign of that covenant. So next up, we get to to Moses. And after a harrowing escape from slavery in Egypt, the people reach the foot of Mount Sinai, where God shows up. To, to revisit the promises that he made to Abraham. And Moses, acting as a representative for Israel, ascends the mountain to hear the terms of God's covenant with his people. God promises to make Israel into a holy kingdom of priests that will spread his blessing and glory to, to all the nations around. 
And God promises blessings if they live his way and worship him and curses if they turn their back on him and reject his rule and his laws. And there's the story of the big picture story continues on from Moses to David. God's people enter Canaan, the promised land, and, and they eventually demand a king because they want to be like all the other nations around. And David becomes a successful leader, overcoming Israel's enemies, restoring order. He wants to build a temple for God to dwell in with his people again. And God's response to this desire is to make a covenant with David, promising to make his name great. Promising to raise up a descendant from his line whose throne and whose kingdom will last forever. David and his descendants must remain faithful to him. That's their end of, of, the, of the agreement, of the covenant. And that leads us to the new covenant. Generation after generation of God's people turned their back on God broke their end of the covenant, weren't able to, to keep his law. And in the midst of exile and rebellion, as God's people are uh, conquered and, and, and taken away, prophets looked forward to a new covenant. So in Jeremiah 31... The Lord says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one, I know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This covenant is to be an, an, an everlasting covenant, this new covenant. God will write his law on the hearts of his people. He will bring complete forgiveness of sin. He will raise up a faithful king from the line of David who will restore all that has been broken. So do you see how these, these covenants progressively build on one another? God preserved the world through Noah. He initiated the, the plan of redemption through Abraham. He established a nation of Israel through Moses. He promised an eternal shepherd king through David. And then fulfilled all of these covenants through Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Look how Jesus described, uh, think of the familiar words Jesus said uh, at the Last Supper. Last meal with his disciples before going to the cross. Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these covenants. He's the one the whole of the Old Testament has been longing for, looking toward. He, he's the serpent crusher promised in chapter 3. 
So that's a whistle-stop tour through the history of the Bible, isn't it? But back to Genesis 9, I just want us to reflect on the sign that was given. It's easy to skip over this rainbow in the sky. But it's a gracious gift of God in the context of sin and crisis and uncertainty. And provides two things. Well, there's two things just to draw out from this rainbow, this sign. The first is that it was given to bring assurance. I mean, put yourself in, in Noah's sandals. After all that he's been through for this past year or so on the ark. Think of what's happening as God speaks. In order for there to be a rainbow in the sky, there's got to be rain, right? Think how Noah must feel about rain. He's out of the ark. The animals are heading off. More rain. Is it all going to happen again? He must must have crossed his mind. Is Is it done or not? This sign. A sign of the binding, unconditional, eternal promise of God that he's making with him, that he's not going to do, do that again. What an assurance that would have been to Noah. So notice this sign is given to bring assurance. But it's also given, interestingly, so that God would remember. I wonder if you pick that up as, as we read through. No, did you notice who this sign is for? Um, verse 14, 15. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the sky, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. The sign is for God himself to remember his binding promise not to destroy the world with floods anymore. It's not that he's absent-minded and likely to forget, and so it's a handy pop-up. Oh, yeah. It's because keeping his word is so foundational to who he is. Now, this sign of a covenant points to the sign of the greater covenant, the, the new covenant, the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus, a gracious gift to us in the context of sin and crisis and uncertainty. The cross of Jesus is is a sign that brings us assurance. Jesus' words as, as he died on the cross, it is finished. Not words of defeat, but a cry of triumph. It's done. The price is paid. On the cross, Jesus didn't sweep our sin under the rug, but he he exposed it and he paid for it. So that now, like Paul in Romans 8, we can say there there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is done. He's condemned sin in the flesh. So that we can be free, so that, so that, so that we can live according to the Spirit now. He, he's done it. The cross speaks to us of the assurance of, of our salvation. It doesn't matter how we feel or what's going on around us. It's, it's done. We have been justified. It is, there is no condemnation for us now if we're trusting in Christ. 
and just as it's a sign that that gives us assurance it's also a sign for God to look at and remember in the same way as the rainbow back then Romans 8 again later on who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen it is God who justifies who then is the one who condemns no one Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us this is a a wonderful picture sometimes we don't focus on on this as as much as we should what Christ has done once and for all on on the cross is glorious and, and is foundational but what he's doing right now is just as glorious too he is interceding for us at God's right hand. He's, he's showing his hands, the wounds in, in, in his hands and his side, to his father, reminding him that the price has been paid. It's done. We are justified. We have the solid hope of, of eternity with him ahead of us because it's done. He's, he's done it. And Jesus is there reminding the father again not because he's absent-minded and oh yeah Um, so where is our hope this morning Uh, what's it in perhaps better who is it in there's no one better nothing better to put our hope in than our great god for all that happens here and now and and for all eternity to come so let's um, let's do that let me pray Heavenly Father we want to thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve we want to thank you that you keep your promises. We want to thank you for all that you've been doing throughout history to make it possible for guilty sinners like us to be washed clean, to be welcomed home into relationship with you and to have an eternity in heaven ahead of us. We want to thank you for your, your grace, your generosity and your mercy. Help us, Lord, to be fully persuaded that you have the power to do what you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen.